I think the key thought in this section has to do with assurance and the assurance that we have in Christ. And I don't mean this as a kind of milk toast sort of assurance, like, uh, but I would say that this assurance has to do with salvation. That is, that the thing that he's talking about here, uh, I, I will ass- our, uh, that we will assure our heart before him. We have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him which I put that one in there because when we read, we'll look at the vine and the branches. When Jesus talks about love of God, love of the Father, and abiding, he also mentions in John this idea that our prayers will be answered. So that part of the assurance that we have is, I think, the assurance that we can go to God with our need. Uh, there is a kind of, you know, I think in a sense, if we go Calvin, Calvinist here and we talk about uh, once saved, always saved, I think we're missing the point. This is not an assurance of a future salvation, you know, of a kind of theoretical understanding. But it is an immediate assurance. It's an experience that we have in life that is, I think, the direct experience of salvation. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So he's saying the same thing several times here, of assurance, of confidence, of, of being able to approach God in prayer, and of abiding. If we were to do the negative in John... You know, he's just talked about Cain uh, killing Abel, so we could say that the lack of assurance is characterized by murderous jealousy. And I think we begin to get the idea here that people are evil. You know, his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The idea is that we are in some way divided within ourselves. You know, Cain is... uh, divided he's over and against himself Uh, John says that hatred of all that Christ and Christians represent uh, brings out this lack of assurance I think the world hates you why do they hate you for the same reason that Cain hated Abel because everybody's looking for this assurance they're all looking for this security the one who has this, I've spelled this disease, dis-ease. Uh, the one who hates his brother is a murderer. That the, This is the characteristic of this lack of assurance. And, and again, I don't think, let's not float into outer space here when we're talking about, I think we're talking about a very basic, kind of almost a mundane thing. He who has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, uh, there is a sign that you're you're missing something. Closed heart, hatred of the brother. And what is it that you need to do? You need to just share your world's goods. The way he said it in 3.18, that there is love with word or tongue. That is, people may talk a good shtick, but it's more than talk. You've got to do it in deed and truth. 
So if we were to sum up, there's this deep dividedness and alienation that the assurance addresses. We've talked about it, and John talks about it in terms of a lie, that we're deceived and we're split within. (laughs) Paul talks about it as the law of sin and death, that we're under this punishing law. Kierkegaard sums it up as the sickness unto death, but I think that's almost New Testament in its description. Isaiah talks about it as a covenant with death. We could also talk about it in terms of the satanic I am, that everybody would, you know, like Descartes, I am, you know, I think, therefore I am, or in Satan, I am, and there is none beside me. That we want to establish ourselves. Jesus again and again says, well, four times in each of the Gospels, whoever wishes to save his life loses it. So the way that we would establish ourselves uh you know we've talked about a death denying identity pride shame uh denying death in a kind of double negative um this may i may be losing you here so i decided i'd give you an illustration of it um this is from the january 30th issue of the new yorker um and the Title is Doomsday Prep for the Super Rich. You know, preppers used to be kind of the strange guys up in Alaska. Uh, But preppers now are Wall Street and, you know, the the guys that doing hedge funds or the uh, people who made millions and billions of dollars. A survey commissioned by National Geographic found that 40% of Americans believed that stocking up on supplies or building a bomb shelter was a wiser investment than a 401k. Uh, one of these guys, Steve Huffman, who he, he started a whole website about survivalism. He says, I own a couple of motorcycles. I have a bunch of guns and ammo. Remember, this guy is a, a, a centimillionaire. You know, Uh, I figure that with that, I can hold up in my house for some amount of time. Um, A guy, the Facebook manager who has since become wealthy, said he's bought five wooded acres on an island in the Pacific Northwest. Another guy says, I keep a helicopter gassed up all the time, and I have an underground bunker with an uh, air filtration system. Uh, just one case after another. Uh, this is Tim Chang. He says, oh my God, if there is a civil war or a giant earthquake that cleaves off part of California, we want to be ready. My current state of mind is oscillating between optimism and sheer terror. Here are these guys that have millions, several of them have billions of dollars, and what they're describing, in a, in a kind of accentuated way, I think is what we're encountering in John. But it's kind of interesting because I think most of us think, well, if we had, you know, a billion dollars, that would give us some security, wouldn't it? And these guys, uh, you know, more than 50% by one, one of them is counting as, you know, that he knows are stocking up, they're buying land in New Zealand uh, so that they can get away from the Holocaust, you know, when it 
occurs in America. Uh, so they, one of them says that we have lots of money and resources, and what are the other things I can worry about and prepare for? It's like insurance. Of course, what they're all, they all seem to be missing is that the, your money doesn't buy you basic security. Uh, basic resources. Even John D. Rockefeller, who was actually a, the first billionaire, real billionaire, he says the novelty of being able to purchase anything one wants soon passes because what people most seek cannot be bought with money. And in this instance, money seems to bring out the nature of the dis-ease. That I don't think it's just the, the super rich that have this disease. But uh, it's the human condition, uh, you know, grabbing all the gusto, hitting the jackpot, living the good life. What well, what may be missing is that the commodity that is being traded in is life, right? We all have a limited amount of it. And we may not say it that way. You know, we may say it, well, I don't have enough security or I need to, you know, get some more cans of tomato paste or, you know, put in my my survival shelter or a few more machine guns. Uh, but of course it's the self salvation that I think Jesus is talking about. We may experience this. And I think this is what John is describing in a, in a very immediate sense that we may experience angst or fear or just, uh, that we're in some way, uh, you know, lacking in being, uh, and our basic impulse is to attain, possess, secure ourselves. John is saying you can have assurance, but we don't get assurance by stockpiling, you know, navy beans and uh, machine guns. And some of these guys have even bought it. There's a uh, guy in Wichita, Kansas, north of Wichita. He bought a former nuclear arms or a, you know, a launching site. And so it's, it's nuclear safe. And he's created these million-dollar homes that will withstand a nuclear, you know, strike. Um, and they've got, you know, landing strips that the people... All these guys have seem to have jets, you know, that they're going to they're gonna fly out. And, um, but... You can't ward off death. That we all have this lack of assurance in the face of the reality that life is limited. Uh, and uh, that ultimately, uh, this is, I think, what Christ is addressing. So in describing the assurance of salvation, uh, the language and picture re resembles then, it's a mutual abiding, abiding together with Christ. Uh, the passage follows the pattern that's there in John 15. I won't read all of John 15, but, you know, the vine and the branches, the discourse in the vine and the branches. If you abide in me and my words and abide you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. <clears throat> if you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and, and abide in his love. 
These things I have spoken to you so that you may, uh, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So this profound assurance gained through abiding in Christ, being able to approach God with our basic needs, asking what we will, and finding joy uh, is the picture. Um, The way that Jürgen Moltmann puts it, it is a person's life as a whole which comes to its flowering. And that's the picture in the vine and the branches that... uh, there is a kind of progression here. Uh, and the warmth of God's love touches the body with its senses as well as the soul, with its feelings and understanding and will. We could talk about a rebirth to true life out of a life drive of the Holy Spirit. And of course, your, Moltmann is consciously using the language of life drive over and against a Freudian death drive. I think that what I've described to you with the super-rich is just an example of the death drive. That they're doing everything they can to ward off death and living in fear and trepidation in spite, and well, maybe because of their great wealth. You know, if you don't have anything, you, <laughs> you're not fearful of losing it. But if, the more you have, maybe the more fearful you are. So... John's picture of the relationship between Christ and his disciples is one of immediacy, mutual and interdependence. Those who are the focus of this, it's a progression. It goes from initial mutual indwelling or abiding and then to an increasing union of wills. You ask whatever you will and it shall be done to you. And then a kind of final blossoming, a bearing of much fruit, which is characterized then by a profound love in verses 8 to 10. So I think we could sum up salvation is a process in which one is brought into a more intimate relationship with God and other people. That is salvation. This abiding, this assurance is our salvation. It's not just a quality that we get you know that as a a kind of additive but rather it is what characterizes our life Uh, Paul will talk about it in terms of the body of Christ the church uh, that you know as we have union we abide together the unity of the church um and we've talked about this, that believing then is always, you know, abiding, believing, these are verbs, the union is something, you know, you could talk about union as a kind of static thing, but that's not what we're talking about here, we're talking about a a verb, that this union, this abiding is something that we do, um, that it develops, it bears fruit, it, you know, it ferments uh, into... Uh, constituting a person's makeup. So when a Christian is bearing fruit, he is becoming a disciple. That you bear much fruit and be my disciples, Jesus says. Now I'm not saying the negative here. That if you're not bearing fruit, the question is if you're being a disciple. But bearing the fruit of salvation is to be a disciple of Jesus. And the bearing fruit is then an action. It's an activity.
both in John and in the in the first John in the Gospel, he connects it to purifying, to being pure. Uh, when Jesus decreases, the true vine, you know, the uh, becomes the vine. The believers increase; uh, they become in this picture of the vine and the branches. Uh, they're spoken. They, they, you know, they are grafted in and become. Uh, fruit-bearing branches, and then they bear much fruit in the conclusion. And then they blossom. The believers become disciples. That uh, it's the end point of, of a process. So this fits with both the gospel and First John. We've talked about that throughout the gospel, he pictures an abiding, restful union. You know, the Word was with God, the only begotten is in the bosom of the Father. And, you know, remember John is leaning on the bosom of Jesus. That uh, there are these intimate scenes uh, of an intense unity. In John 14, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Think about this, you know, and again, think about it in a fairly mundane sense, and and you get the idea best, I think, that when people were hungry, you know, he fed the 5,000. When people were scared, he calmed the waves. When people are diseased, he healed their diseases, and I think that's precisely the thing that we are to have assurance about is that ultimately our security is in the hands of God. And sometimes that may involve our death, but nonetheless our security is in the hands of God. Um, in this passage, there's a, there's a bit of confusion, but I, I'm not going to dwell on it. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. The question here is, what do you trust more, your heart or God? I think the idea in the passage is that, in fact, we trust what we've been told about a relationship to God in Christ more than we trust our own conscience. I think that's what the verse is saying. Your heart may not, you know, you may bear guilt, but John is saying, well, God's greater than your heart. God's greater than your conscience. Uh, that if you have this abiding union, this is the assurance that you have a, that you've been purified and have a clean conscience. We'll come back to that. Both in the gospel and here, he talks about the great commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So the God who is love in himself saves us through an economy of love. And that's what I've just described to you as two economies. There's the economy of sin in which people are fearful, alienated. You know, these super rich, what do they want to do? They want to make sure and keep their stuff. And they don't want other people to get their stuff. 
So they hire armed guards. John says that if you see your brother in need and you close your heart to him, then you do not have the love of God in you. And so one's an economy of hatred, of jealousy, of lack, of lack of assurance, and the other is an economy of abundance, of assurance, and of mutual abiding. Any comments or questions before we read? That was fairly brief, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. I think it was too brief. Too brief. (laughs) It ended way prematurely. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that, Sharon. (laughs) You want to read the first one here for us, Sharon? One second, please. Or I can have uh, Chris read. Not fast enough. Uh, Okay. Go ahead. First John three thirteen. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers who does not love whoever does not love abides in death. So I think he's describing the two economies. We may not you know, we may not know where to get this assurance, but John is saying, well, the assurance is right there in front of you. Uh, do you uh, love the brethren? Do you abide together? You know, do you, uh, or do you uh, abide in death? And that's the choice. And of course, many people, it's a kind of living death uh, that in some way have failed uh the the to have life and John we talked about this last time he equates life and love that if you have love you have life and if you do not have love then you dwell in death Chris you want to do the next one we know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren but we're okay he skipped one. Oh, I did? Oh, sorry. Uh, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the bedroom. Uh, there, there, uh, there is a kind of... Uh, resolution to fear once you once you recognize this uh, you know you can get you a really big dog and an armed guard and and carry a uh, you know uh, have a conceal and carry license and spend your life worrying about your life trying to protect your life and it, I mean at a superficial level I think that that is reflective of what most people are really concerned about. And it may drive them in different ways. Once you, once you give up on that project, that's the, that's the shift, I think, from the heavy burden that we all carry to the light load that Jesus promises. Um, that you enter a different economy in which... Uh, you're not securing yourself. You're not saving yourself. Uh, but in fact, your uh, concern, your love is for the brother. And so 
That's the that's the message of the Gospel of John, of the Gospels, I think. But uh, but John is reflecting, I think, uh, especially the teaching in in the Gospel here of agape love that is defined as the willingness to lay down your life for someone else. Um, that is the ultimate gift, the ultimate generosity that you can only do, I think, with the full assurance that our security is in the hands of God. He uses murder four times. That's a lot. And I don't suppose he's talking about real killers. I, I imagine he's just talking about people that are hateful and mean. And John 8, he said, describing Satan, he says, he was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So even Satan, did you know, did he take out a knife and run Adam and Eve through? He just lied to them. He misdirected them. He gave them the wrong story. And through that killed them. So he's dealing in deadly lies. And when we we deal in the untruth that is the lie, I think that puts us in this category of murder. It just makes it really scary because then you're like, oh my gosh, am I a murderer? You know? Like, accidentally, like, manslaughter, you know? You accidentally hated somebody. Yeah. Well, sometimes you don't know. Right. No. <laughs> they had a whole sacrificial system for, like, the sins that you unintentionally did. That's true. That's true. And it just really affects other people. It's really... Anybody, anybody, come to our rescue here. How can we know that we're not murderers? Or killers. That we know that we are murderers. <laughs> no. no. Just go ahead and admit that you are. Just, just, just willingness to admit in front of everybody that I have a murderous mindset. Tendency. Tendency. I know. It just puts a lot of pressure on you. You know? You don't want John saying these things about you. I'm a natural-born killer myself, but uh, I'm trying to get over it, right? That's why you need us. That's why I need you. I need you bad. I'm not going to let you kill anyone. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and I, you know, in a suit, in a kind of... I won't of... let you kill me either. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And if I did, you know, I'd feel, I'd think, well, what would Maisie think? <laughs> so, see that may that may in and of itself you know <laughs> I'm, in a sense it's not silly because that's I think in a sense we do we want to say well wait a minute I can't have these attitudes I can't I can't think in this way because I want uh, that I don't want hatred and murder to be controlling factors in my life uh, I don't want that be to be definitive of who I am. And I'm not saying that's easy sometimes in life. People that go through great 
tragedies and, you know, uh, have experienced terrible things, you know, may spend years. We get a magazine. It's called The Plow, <laughs> which actually I, I uh, did uh, resonate very well with me. Mm-hmm. And there's a guy there that in the in the magazine. He grew up in North Korea, and for some reason he had English. He had, he was bilingual. I've got kind of forgotten, and became a tutor to Kim Jong Il's family. Mm-hmm. This is not good. You don't really want uh, because. He was traveling, I think he was traveling in Russia, and some South Koreans approached him and said, you know, you can escape, uh, and you need to because your sister wants to meet. You know, they, they created this kind of scenario where they almost forced him to escape from North Korea, and so he did, and they killed, they killed his whole family. <gasps> They killed his wife. They killed his children. They killed. They killed everybody that was in any way connected to this guy. And the the, the article is about forgiving Kim Jong Il. Mm-hmm. I mean, I the guy you gotta admire somebody that is up up to that. Mm-hmm. But but of course his point is that the capacity to do that enables him than to not let that be the defining mm-hmm. moment in his life. Uh, and so I think with God's help, we can, we can do this thing. Uh, but I think it's only, and that's what John's point is, that it's through the Spirit. That we, if we abide together, we love the brothers, I think we can avoid having hatred control us. Because uh, it's not only Jesus that we have an example, in, but it's many other Christians in the past, or in the or yeah. that we know, you know, yeah, like we. So therefore, knowing that it's possible, knowing, and then that God is saying, like, that He, well, I don't, I forget what it says, and I couldn't find it today, but like whatever He has started in you, He will perfect. I don't remember, mm-hmm. but. Um, so just knowing that he is making us more like him. Yeah. And that doesn't mean they're just like, oh, I'll just do whatever I want. Whatever that means. But we really know that he's making us see people and see everything more like him. So, like, if our mind's not changing over the years, then, then maybe we can start worrying. But Yeah. And it's also, you, like, we can do it. Like, with God's help, we can do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not just me. And I think that, that that's the thing that always amazed me about Martin Luther King Jr. If there's anybody that ever should have hated the white man, here was the guy. And I really think he did it. I, I, I think that he really, he was able to preach love to these bigoted racists who ultimately took his life. Yeah, I can't believe he's not talked about more in the church. Yeah. I mean, that's just, like, says a lot that he's not. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of like, you know, the, my daughter did the devotion on the end of the sphere at 
at uh, a lake, a uh, 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 pond wood church here. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> and they said, well, that's a nice story, but we don't believe in that stuff here. Laying down your life, you know, rather than... They told that to her? Yeah, yeah. They said, Joel? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. We don't do that here. Wow. Was it a business? Uh-huh. Was it a business instead of a church or something? Uh, <laughs> so, so the unwilling, uh, there is a blatant unwillingness to lay down the, your people's lives. In other words, that's, people say, well, we won't, no one take this thing too far. But that's what Jim Elliott, you know, they all agreed. They all, there wasn't an accident that that happened, Right. Because they had a gun with them, but they said, "Okay, we got this gun, but we're not going to shoot anybody. We got the gun because we'll shoot. We're going to shoot a snake or an animal. But if these people attack us, we're going to let them slaughter us." They all agreed to that when they got on that airplane, and that's what happened. Uh, you know, it's sort of like uh, uh, Wittgenstein when he sent. I think it was one of. Uh, I think it was. Uh, Oh, I've forgotten this. One of his students became a medical doctor in World War II. And he said, well, that's fine. You go do that. But he said, if a, if a soldier, a German soldier should attack you, just let them slaughter you. Because that's what you're called to as a Christian. That's hard. Those are hard words. But I think that's what, that's what's being said here. That to lay down our life. Rather than take life, we lay down life. I mean, if you think about the two things, we, we, the language we use, we just want to make a living. Yeah, can you make a life? Can you make... Or, you know, murder is I want, you know, you take life. In both instances, the commodity being traded is life itself. Mm-hmm. And what we're saying is, we're not trading in other people's lives. Mm-hmm. We'll trade our life, we're willing to give up our life. I lit. I just take that literally, mm-hmm. and I know that's a hard thing. And I'm not saying that I'm up to it, mm-hmm. but like we just said, if you guys will, if we'll support each other in this, that maybe maybe we can disciple. We can all disciple each other so that we're actually capable of doing such thing. Mm-hmm. If we agree together, this is what it says. Mm-hmm. Then I think we can we can do it. But if we don't agree together, I don't think we can, because I don't think any one of us is capable of doing it on on our own. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, then, uh, Maisie, you want to read the next one? Is it seventeen? Whoever has the world's goods. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? How does it? <laughs> uh, if you're not willing to sacrifice your stuff, mm-hmm. your money, your your worldly wealth, I, uh, for those in need, uh, I, the question is a rhetorical question. How does the love of God abide in Him? It doesn't. Now again, we're all. This is harsh on you know. We all can reflect on our own life and mm-hmm. say, okay, this is what we're called to. But let's get straight what we're called to, and then see if we can do it. But at least let's get it out there that this is what we're supposed to do. 
And Rachel, you want to do the next one? Yeah. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Uh, that I think you, uh, we, we talked about this one last time. We can stack up the doctrines. We can do our systematic theology. We can say all the right words. And you can still be of the devil. Mm-hmm. All right? I'll even say it stronger. You can believe the right doctrines, but if you don't do it, if it's not there in deed and truth, and apparently we've fallen short. Uh, again, I think that John is dealing with these Gnostics who want to empty the, the Christian faith of any content. They want to make it all about otherworldly plane, you know, doing something in another realm. But it just so much resembles a continuing problem that we have of wanting to do everything with our words, with our tongue, talk about it, but not carry through with the action. Uh, Jake, you want to do the next one? Mm-hmm. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. This I told you the way I'm taking this, Jake. You can disagree if you want. Okay. Uh, and that is that it may be that our heart condemns us, but we're wrong. You know, Paul says this that he says, even if I myself, you know, in some way feel a, that. I stand condemned, he says, yes, but God is greater than my own conscience. I'm not quoting it very accurately, but uh, similar idea. That is that we can't trust ourselves even about ourselves. That we have an assurance that stands outside of us that we're to take as a first order reality about us. We don't have access to the truth about ourselves in and through ourselves. We have access to the truth about ourselves in and through Christ. Now that may be counterintuitive, but I think that's what he's saying. Your own conscience, is it, you know, that's Jiminy Cricket, let your conscience be your God. I think Jiminy's wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't think that our conscience, in fact, is the sole guide, is to be our guide. In fact, our conscience and our morality may be our problem. Because our tendency is to a kind of masochism in which we would punish ourselves continually. And so I think that the assurance here is a relief from the own, our own punishing masochistic tendencies. So if you go around saying, you know, I'm an idiot or, you know, or you go around putting yourself down, you're wrong, right? In other words, we, we are a, a child of God and we have this assurance that God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Some people interpret it to say that if your heart condemns you, uh, that in some way, I, and now I've lost the wrong interpretation, but the idea there, they're, they would interpret it just the opposite of what I said. Is it because the next verse? Maybe, yeah. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So there, the grammar here apparently in the Greek is a little confusing. 
but I think what he's saying is that if your heart condemns you, well, you God is greater than your heart. If you have confidence, well, that fits with the confidence we have before God. Uh, are we ready, Michael? Did you read, Jake? Mm-hmm. Michael, you are reading this one. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence in relation, in relationship to God. Oh, there is the uh, okay. Go ahead and finish the sentence. Verse twenty-two, then. Mm-hmm. We receive whatever we ask from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. That is our will in the picture of the vine. That is our will accords with His will. We can ask whatever we want, and we'll receive it. So that, I don't think this is, you know, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? I don't think it's that kind of prayer. What? Um, That's what I pray. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think that in as much as our, you know, we're keeping his commandments, we're doing the things that are pleasing in his sight, then whatever we ask in his name will be granted to us. This is a huge deal, I think. This is part of the assurance that we have this assurance that our security is in the hands of God. Uh, so, I'm going to depend on this verse at this point in my life. Amen. Um, and I would pray that all of you would be put in such a place in your life that you're made to rely upon this verse. Is that a... Is, is, oh, Sharon's mad at me that I would... That's just my face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, being out of a job, uh, being, you know... Hey, we're kind of in the same boat. <laughs> yes, so you understand, Michael. Uh, it does put you in a place where you're directly reliant on, on God and your brothers and sisters, which is not necessarily a bad thing because that's where we're always supposed to be, I think. And then, uh, Christian, you want to read the next one? Sure. This is the one of beloved Kirk. 23, I think. I think this is his commandment. Okay. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Um, what do you think it means to believe in the name of Jesus? You think that you just pray a prayer, Jesus, I accept you into my heart. We know better. <laughs> or even do you think it's uh, that you get baptized? And I, in no way am I doing away with that. But is that what he's talking about here? Um, the the belief and the love for one another and following his command, do you really believe him? If you really believe him, you follow his command. And he says the same thing in the gospel, you know, when he's talking in the, the, the vine of the branches. He says, if you do what I've commanded you, then you show that you believe me. What's he commanded us? Well, he's commanded us to love one another. So, belief is never a thing you do in your head. 
in, in, in the Bible. And that's never an issue. So we've got, this is a strange thing that's developed, that we got a Christianity that would separate itself out from action or ethics or doing stuff. And it doesn't mean you do stuff because you want to work your way to salvation. But the idea is, and you've already heard this, that what Paul is describing when he's talking about works or works of the law and about circumcision and food laws, and what James is talking about is you do stuff that you can't send people away in an unloving manner and imagine that you have faith. Paul doesn't disagree with that. They all agree. And David, do you want to read the last verse here? The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So as I understand it, we the this reality comes home to us in and through the koinonia the mutual abiding that we experience in the fellowship. And that's precisely where we experience the Holy Spirit in binding us together. And that as we, you know, this is the picture in the vine and the branches. This is the picture in John 14 and 15. That as I abide in the Father and the Father abides in me, you know, that they may abide in us. And that's the picture is this mutual Abiding together. What is the word abiding? What does it mean? Can we let's get use a different word? Dwell. Dwell together. Live together. Uh, I, I, you know, it's again. I don't think we need to mystify it, uh, though. There, I'm not saying there may not be a mystical element, but I think the mystical element is one we can immediately see in that we dwell together. We abide together. All right, comments or questions on this section? When we turn to a life of legalism, earning our work, or like taking what Paul and Jesus and Abraham, basically the Bible, taking that and making it a means of earning salvation, it does exactly the opposite of what, like, um, if I heart the whole condemning thing, because I mean, in that whole system of legalism, of works, it's you're in and out of salvation. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, you're either condemning yourself or someone else all the time. Right. And so it's just toxic. A toxic Christianity. Is that too strong? I mean, I just said it too. So. <laughs> you said it first. <laughs> Those don't get us both. Yeah, toxic Christianity. Um, and, and I, you know, I, in saying this, we're all in we're all in a journey here, right? We're all in process. So it's not like we're mm-hmm. we're pointing the finger and but what we're doing is we I think that's why we read the New Testament. That's why we're on this journey. We want other people to join us. 
So again, we can't just be condemning of people who may in fact be part of a toxic understanding, but I think we can be condemning of a doctrine and an understanding that gives rise to this toxicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we, we should, you know, John talks about these things very harshly, and I think that, that we need to make a clear divide of what a healthy Christianity looks like and what the toxic form looks like. Um, and I think, I think it's, uh, you know, we can talk about, because John talks about authentic and inauthentic beliefs. That you people can do this thing in word and tongue, and it doesn't mean a thing.